Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm your host, Brad Ferlin, uh, Monday host, and uh, it's nice to be here today. It was uh, a mixed bag of weather on the weekend. My daughter and I did go over to Burt's Orchard uh, in Cabot, and uh, it was quite busy there despite the the rain and uh, a lot of people getting pumpkins and cider and apples and uh, just a beautiful place over there. So that was a nice drive. Uh, we I did... Uh, put up, uh, hay and firewood this weekend as well, getting everything ready for the winter for our sheep. And, uh, so that's all set. Firewood not yet set. Uh, and I'm hoping to put more in and, uh, keep the house warm with wood, uh, to avoid other large bills that can come through the mail, uh, for, for various things, uh, so we have a, a great show today, and I uh, appreciate uh, you listeners. We can't do radio without you. I hope that uh, you had a good weekend as well, and glad that you've joined us this morning. Uh, today we have uh, Scott Beck coming up uh, in, a, in a few moments. He is a representative uh, in the state legislature from Caledonia County, but he's got a lot of other hats, and we'll talk about all of that. And then at 10 o'clock, we'll be talking with uh, Elmore writer Connell O'Brien, who has two books out and uh, mystery murder uh, books, and he's got a third one coming. He also was a longtime director of soap operas in New York City and Los Angeles, and that's a pretty interesting story. We've talked to both of these guests in the past, and I invited them to come back and join us and update on Things in their world, and with that, I want to welcome to the show uh, Representative Scott Beck. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, you're way up in the kingdom. It takes a little while for your voice to get here to Waterbury, I guess. <laughs> Everything's slow on Route Two. <laughs> it's all those leave peepers. They've kind of congested the road a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so welcome. You know, I. As I was introducing you, you know, as a representative, it's, it just, it sells you short because you've got so many hats and, uh, uh, I, you're like a lot of Vermonters who just really do a lot of things and, uh, you, right. you touch your own community and stuff. Um, one of the things is, uh, you and your wife have a bookstore, right? And how, how is we that do. going? Um, great. Uh, the book business is, it's fantastic in St. Johnsbury. Um, it's growing every year. Uh, a lot of people are reading, and um, a lot of people are reading on paper, and they're getting those those books at their local bookstores. Yeah, a valuable asset in Vermont. And, and um, I haven't seen this specifically, but my daughter mentioned that there's a club where you can go to each independent bookstore around the state and, and get a stamp, I think. Is that um, something no, that you're part a, of. That's a great. That's a great idea. I have not heard of it, but um, maybe, maybe um, you can have your daughter get in touch with me. We'd like to be a part of that. Yeah. No. It, it's 
it's inspiring. It's kind of like the 251 Club of bookstores. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll get you more information on that. And okay. that's the Boxcar and Caboose. I was I'm intrigued by that. How did you come up with that name, or was that something you inherited? Well, we didn't inherit it. We we opened the bookstore. Um, it, it's on Railroad Street. And so, um, and St. Johnsbury's got a pretty rich, uh, railroad tradition. So that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. As, as does Vermont. In fact, my grandfather left farming when he was 16 because he just milked the last cow of his life and, mm-hmm. uh, he joined the railroad and, uh, never looked back. So it is a big part of things. Were you affected, um, in St. Johnsbury or, or your store or the region with the flooding? I, I'm not sure about that. Well, um, St. Johnsbury was not affected by the flooding, thankfully. Um, we have three rivers that come through here, but we have a lot of elevation change. And so the water gets through here pretty quick. Ah, um, so thankfully. we were very fortunate. But um, we did have um, uh, surrounding towns, um, especially to the north and to the west, uh, Danville, Hardwick, uh, Lindenville, where the um, water doesn't move quite as quickly, um, that, that did have some significant damage. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I went to the uh, the orchard, Burt's Orchard yesterday, we went through Hardwick and we, we yeah. definitely saw where it was. In fact, my daughter noticed there was like a covered bridge that had collapsed uh on, on right, the, I know exactly where you're talking about. Yeah, there's a corner on the river there where they've had trouble in the past, and um, they definitely had some trouble this summer. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that I'm gathering will be a big legislative issue for you, or will it? Uh, the flooding and the recovery. <laughs> I think I think it will be an issue. I think um, you know we're we're still trying to. I think well, the, the agencies are still trying to figure out. Um, still trying to unpack all these federal um, aid programs and and how to get the um, the money out to those that are affected. Uh, but as you know, um, that's you know the feds usually their stuff comes down on a county basis, and even within counties, some people are covered and some people are not covered. And so I think everybody knows that we have um, gaps right now, either by geography or by um, different type of ownership of people that were impacted by the flooding um, that have not received any types of assistance. Um, and I do know that the administration is, you know, I know they're aware of that, and they're starting to look at different strategies to to help those people out. Yeah, I'm. I'm it's good to hear that. And I, I've heard sort of mixed reviews on, you know, whether you're eligible or not and what you apply for and how quickly it came through. So, Probably at the end of the day, you're going to have some heavier lifting than maybe you thought originally, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, there's a gap there um, for sure. Um, I guess, you know, maybe by the time we get back there in January, we'll have a better sense of exactly what the scope and scale and magnitude of that gap is. Yeah. We talked last time you were on the show, um, you were a naval flight officer and uh, were you landed jets on aircraft carriers, which is always intrigues me. <laughs> it's like hitting an apple with an arrow at a hundred yards or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a good analogy. Maybe a grape. <laughs> a grape. Wow. Okay. Uh, 
the first time you landed, how was your heart pounding? Oh yeah, it sounded pretty good. Um, it, uh, you know, it's on a Navy at an aircraft carrier, you fly a higher glide slope than you do at a regular airfield. So as you're coming in, you feel really, really high, which means you're coming down really, really fast. And, uh, yeah, it does get the heart pumping pretty good. And obviously there are a lot of safeguards and you practice and practice and practice, but I, I imagine it's, uh, would you say ultimately you were doing it in your sleep? Was it, were you, did you get to that proficiency or how does that work? Well, no, 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 you would not do it in your sleep. Um, uh, you do, you practice it over and over and over again. Um, but when you go out to the ship the first time, of course, the, the ship is much smaller than a runway. Um, it's moving, it's pitching, and the really weird thing is is that because it has an angle deck, is that angle deck is moving not in the direction that the runway goes, so you got to have to kind of put all that together. Yeah, that's quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a few differences. And then, uh, as I recall, ocean waves seem to go up and down quite a bit, too. <laughs> so I mean, depending, sometimes the deck was pretty stable, and other times it was, you know, could be moving 40 feet and up and down in either direction, um, depending on the sea state. Yeah. Now, um, I look at military history a little bit, and, of course, we had, we have the Civil War in our own country where uh, ground troops, so to speak, were face to face with, with rifles and stuff and cannons. And, um, but nowadays really jet fighters are a, a big part and an important part, would you say? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think any, any army person would be really quick to point this out. Um, you know, uh, air assets don't occupy ground, uh, for sure. Uh, never have been, never will be able to, but they do provide the cover and the, um, the, the, the strategic, um, strikes that allow ground troops to, to maintain ground. Right. So there's a, there's a symmetry there, um, yeah. in the technology. Yeah. Very difficult to control the ground if you don't control the air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're talking with, uh, Representative Scott Beck of, uh, the, uh, St. Johnsbury area. You, we're going to take a short break, but you, you represent what towns? I represent, um, Concord, Kirby, and St. Johnsbury. And I live in St. Johnsbury. Okay. So three district kind of thing. Um, right. Three town district. Yep. So that's a pretty big area. Uh, do you, um, get to get around? Do you hear from, from constituents and, uh, I, I do, um, I'm kind of, it, you know, I went from, it's a two-seat district. It was just St. Johnsbury, which was the smallest two-seat district in the state. And now with reapportionment with Kirby and Concord being added, it's the largest two-seat district in the state. Um, I'm fortunate that my family has owned, a, well, since before I was born, um, my father and my grandfather built it. We've owned a camp on Miles Pond in Concord. Um, and so I, I actually spent a lot of time in Concord and I know that town a little bit and I know a lot of the people there. So that was, that was really um, nice. And then, um, Kirby, because of my work at the academy in the area, I've touched base with a lot of people from Kirby over the years. Um, so I know some of them, 
Um, and I do, I do try to attend as many of their um, select board meetings and, and gatherings as I can to try to get to know them even better. But um, it, it is different in the sense that they have a lot. I mean, I, as I always say, every the priorities are the same in every town, but how they prioritize those priorities is different. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, you get into Concord and, and Kirby, and they're really uh, land use is very, very important to them. Uh, because they have a lot of land uh, relative to their population, um, so I'm I'm getting to know them and um, you know trying to figure them out so I can I can best represent them in the legislature. You bring up land use, and uh, I've had a number of guests over the last several months, and certainly Act 250 gets brought up a lot, and uh, yeah. I imagine a blossoming communities that are growing like Vermont is in some respects. We With uh, COVID, <laughs> suddenly we were the Mecca, I think. Uh, and so, are, you know, are, is is development and housing and, and Little Kirby and, uh, you know, Concord, is there light at the end of the tunnel for them? Well, I mean, I think there is. I mean, they're a little more focused. I mean, Act 250 is probably something that more like a St. Johnsbury would be because of commercial development. Um, but what they're really um, I focused on, especially Kirby, is um, they're trying to get their arms around short-term rentals mm-hmm. um, and, and where you can build them and where you can't and, and uh, you know, whether the owner has to be there and all the other um, – because they don't really have the um, – the town services to support a large rental industry. Um, so they're trying to get their arms around that. As far as Act 250 is concerned, um, my, as I always tell people, you know, being over here in St. Johnsbury and on the other side of the river from New Hampshire, uh, the rule of thumb is, is that if you go develop something in New Hampshire, your permitting takes half the time and costs half as much as it does to do the same thing in Vermont. And so, as you can imagine, that drives a lot of development across the river. Um, and so that's the part about Act 250 that I'm uh, most focused on. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And there's a, another edge to that, I imagine, and that is you're a retailer in uh, St. Johnsbury, and yet yeah. there's no sales ta- tax across the river. Um, what adjustments do you make for that? How do you how do you I mean, obviously, you're you're local and you're you provide good service. Yeah. Um, well, that's really the you know I think we we can't control that. Um, the state of Vermont forces us to collect six percent, um, and people know that they don't have to collect it on the other side of the river. Um, so we do, you know, um, store appearance, um, customer service, offerings, convenience. Um, those are all things that we have to accentuate. Um, uh, be, to offset, you know, disadvantages. I mean, every store, of course, has disadvantages and advantages. But the, the bigger thing, you know, for us, uh, sales tax, I don't think actually is um, that big of a factor because, you know, our average sale, you know, a paperback book is $15, $16. Um, people probably aren't going to drive 20 miles to save 90 cents of sales tax. Um, but the issue is, is that, um, it's not that they're driving over there to save 90 cents. It's that they're, they're going to Lowe's and then they're going to Walmart and then they're going to tractor supply. 
And so, you know, in business, in order to be successful, generally speaking, you have to have a lot of other successful businesses around you to help drive people into your area um, to increase customer traffic. And so, you know, when a business decides to locate to New Hampshire instead of Vermont, um, well, the, the traffic to that business now goes to New Hampshire instead of Vermont. And when they go there, then they're that much less likely to stop at a Vermont business. Um, so that's where, you know, when you have things like um, Act 250, which can make it much easier to develop in New Hampshire than Vermont, then that provides a steady um, incentive for businesses to set up shop in New Hampshire. Yeah, no, you raise a, um, such a valid point. The St. Albans went through this same dilemma with, you know, Walmart locating there and there was really talk that it was going to decimate the downtown. Yet a lot of the, uh, the buying was being done in Williston from Franklin County or in Plattsburgh from Franklin County. Yes, exactly. And once people leave and then they don't stop at, shop at local stores, at least if the Walmart's in your town, then you have people coming to your town. Yeah. And, and, for people who haven't been in St. Albans for a while, it's, it's blossomed into this really beautiful city with, you know, yeah. uh, niche, uh, restaurants are really thriving there and boutiques. And so these things can work. Uh, they can. I think, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that, um, consumers are looking for certain things. And one of the things that they're looking for is, is value and low prices on certain products. And it's, it's, I think the main street type of businesses have figured out that that's really tough to compete with the, the big corporations. Um, um, but you still want those people at, that shop with the big corporations to shop in your town. So if you have that big store, you know, that general store, that general merchandiser in your town, then those people are going to be more likely to stop at those local businesses than if they say drove to Plattsburgh to get to that general merchandiser. Yeah. So years and years ago when I was, uh, I just gotten out of college, I moved up to St. Albans and I started working in retail at, uh, Nate's clothing store. And there was a Nate's in St. Johnsbury and Burlington and Montpelier. Uh, and those were the days, Scott, when people, Really, there was a strong merchant community. I learned more at Nate's about retail than I could have ever imagined. It was just like a, a MBA in, in retail marketing. Is there that kind of um, camaraderie in the business community in St. John's right now? You, you're you're part of many. Do you do you feel like it's still there? I think. I think it is. It's a little, it's probably a little more informal now, but, um, I mean, I, I have certainly learned in 18 years that, that my fortune as a, as a bookstore owner is directly tied to how many strong businesses there are around me. Um, so I'm always, you know, I talk to them and, um, you know, trying to figure out what they're doing, what's, what's working well. Um, where the gaps are in offerings, um, because I, you know, not only do I want to succeed, but I want them to succeed because my success is directly tied to their success. Yeah. And COVID certainly threw everybody for a loop. Um, you, were you able to stay open through most of that and, 
in hoping that people wanted to do something at home, like read books? Um, we we stayed open the entire time. Um, of course, for about, I don't know, eight weeks there or so that we were restricted in that uh, people could not enter the store. You know, we could meet them on the sidewalk or over the phone or take stuff to them or, you know, whatever. But they, we could not allow them into the store, which is terribly difficult when you run a store that's built for people to browse <laughs> and then people can't browse. Yeah. Um, it, it was, I mean, it was awful. We probably did a third of the business we would normally do. And we probably worked three times as hard as we've ever worked. So it was really terrible. Um, but, you know, I think it was by Memorial Day weekend, they opened up. We were allowed to let people in um, with some restrictions as far as how many people we could let in. But that was fine. Um, and then, um, you know, things got back to normal pretty quick. Um, people, you know, they, they started using their masks. That, that made them comfortable. Um, our store is large enough. We're about 3,000 square feet that, um, you know, you could always shop and maintain separation from other people that, um, you know, you didn't, maybe didn't know or weren't comfortable with. Um, so things got back to, back to normal pretty quickly. And I think people were just, after eight weeks of being stuck in their home, they were just really anxious to get out. Yeah, for sure. Um, my daughter is 14, and uh, she is a prolific reader. I'm very uh-huh. happy Good about you. that. And yeah. um, we... We talk about, and I, I'm also a member of the Vermont League of Writers, and um, the the literary agents were saying that, and you probably can describe this better than me, the habit of a, a person who picks, picks a book off the shelf in your shop, they look at the cover, they look at the back, they open the first page, they read the first paragraph, and then they either buy it or they put it back up. Do you, is that the pattern? Uh, yes, that is. It's funny. I, I talk to uh, my employees about that all the time. That is exactly the the progression. Um, there are it's, there are some people that will walk into a bookstore and they're like, "I am going to buy the next John Grisham, no matter what." But for the other ninety nine percent of purchases, um, generally that's what they do. They they cover grabs their eye. They look at the back cover to get a sense of what the general story is about. And then if they like that, then they'll read a couple pages. And if, if they can check all three uh, boxes, then that's normally going to be a purchase. So that's the admonition to the writer. You got to get the first couple paragraphs right or. Uh, yes. Yes. It's very important. <laughs> people it's aren't really going to. Yeah. Um, well, it's great. You know, I love that small bookstores are still doing well and uh, you're certainly part of that. And. Uh, we're talking this morning uh, with Representative Scott Beck. You're one of the veterans of the trade, aren't you? Um, I've just, I'm in my fifth term, so I've, I've probably been there longer than more people than I haven't been there as longest. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think I understood that. Yeah. Uh, so I want to um, before we get into the Montpelier stuff, I just want to talk a little bit about. You're also a, uh, a teacher or professor at uh, St. Johnsbury Academy, and American history and American government and economics are a couple of the things you teach. Um, what I, strikes me, and, and help me with this, but you've got a lot of real world uh, under your belt, which must, must help a lot with, with your teaching and keeping the interests of your students. It, it does. Um, I can talk, 
you know, we can just sometimes, uh, my kids love to get me off on tangents. <laughs> which, um, and I don't mind getting off on tangents because it means they're, they're curious and they want to learn about things that maybe they don't read in books or um, that they've been curious about but really haven't known where to explore. So um, I can. I, you know, I've, I've been around the world a couple times and uh, you know, I've served in the legislature for now going into my 10th year. I've been a business owner, um, volunteer in a lot of different community organizations, and I've been an educator for, I guess, 28 years now, 25 at St. Johnsbury Academy. So um, I don't mind um, sharing my experiences with my kids, uh, especially when they're curious about them. We've talked on this show uh, over the last several months, occasionally with guests, about for lack of a better term, lost boys, um, that there's some data that suggests that, you know, women are going into colleges more than, than men now or, and, uh, there may be a higher rate of dropout in the high schools with, with these quote unquote lost boys. What, what are you seeing in your world in, in that? Well, um, you know, the same thing, that, you know, it, the colleges, I mean, it's well documented. Um, UVM is a, a poster child for this. Um, you know, 60% of their student population tends to be women and 40% tends to be men. Um, and that's fine. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing, you know, I think, you know, most people have settled on the, the notion that, you know, college um, is, is not the end all be all. And there are certainly ways to become trained and educated and successful that, that don't include a traditional four-year college curriculum. Um, but, you know, I think as far as um, the lost, uh, it's, it's in both genders. Um, and what, you know, what I see, and I've seen it for a long time, is that, you know, when, you, when somebody leaves an educational phase in their life, let's say it's high school, um, you either want them to be one of two things, I think. One is is uh, trained and ready to go and to enter a workforce with a skill. Um, the other is is that to be um, so curious at that moment in time that they want to c- continue their education in a um, you know a traditional four year um, college type of scenario. Um, and but we do see kids, um, you know, and it's well documented throughout the U.S. It's not a Vermont phenomenon, that's for sure, of kids that are getting out of um, high school. They're not sure about continuing their formal education, but they also don't have the skills um, that they need to go out into the the workforce. And those those are the um, the kids that um, I, I worry about to some degree. Um, but I will also tell you, and it's very gratifying. <laughs> When I was my first um, graduation at St. Johnsbury Academy, and I was in the last row because I was the youngest teacher. Now I'm in the front row. But, um, you know, kids would go across the stage that I had taught, and um, I would almost, like, want to cover my eyes because I was just so worried about that. Like, how is that child ever going to ever going to make it? Um, and then, um, especially as a store owner, um, they come back. And uh, I see them in bookstores with their kids, and they're buying books. And they're, um, and I think, um, I think every every child and every adult goes through phases of of being curious and wanting to to learn. Um, and I think sometimes our kids, when they graduate and they're 18 years old, 
they might not be right at that phase in their their life. But I am um, optimistic um, because I see a lot of them later in life that they do get to that point where they're curious um, and they do gain that skill or they do go back into a four-year general curriculum. And I'm, I'm always gladly surprised at how many of them turn out just fantastic, even though I'm very worried about them when they graduate as 18-year-olds. I think I really love your insight on that. And, and I see that too, where, you know, people just don't find their soul on any kind of predictable timeline. Uh, so I, I love that. So when you're, you've been teaching for a long, long time, is there any place you can go and have dinner or shop or be on the street without people going, Mr. Beck, Mr. Beck? No. And it's, it's, I, I, some, it's funny. Some of my students, um, much later in life or even shortly after they get out of school, they're very comfortable with calling me Scott. Um, I have other teachers that are uh, other former students that are, you know, they're in their early, early forties. They still can't not call me Mr. Beck. <laughs> I kind of chuckle at it. It's, it's, it's fun. It doesn't bother me. Well, it's funny you say that we had close friends who lived in Burlington, but they were from uh, Kingston, Ontario, and they were only here for academics for for a while and then they moved back and when I would visit in them in Kingston people called the adults by the first name and I I couldn't do it it was impossible <laughs> I feel like yeah. you're going to get sent to your room or something <laughs> yeah it's it's uh, it's funny how that uh, it's kind of like in any in any town in Vermont you know there's a number of towns that you call it the the so and so house you know after a family and the family hasn't maybe lived there for half a century or more, but people still call it that, yeah. that house. And you just can't let go of it. Yeah. And so one last thing on, on, on the, the teaching part, you've had such a long career of it. Has there been a, any kind of dramatic change in sort of the, the students, you know, we, were they much different 25 years ago? Or are they much different now? What, what, what do you, what have you seen? Um, I think they are much different now. Um, you know, I think there's two things. Uh, one is is that when I first started teaching, we were still in the phase of where you told a kid to do something, whether it was on the athletic field or in a classroom, and they did it. <laughs> and now we fully um, transition to the you have to tell them why. You have to help them to understand why they're doing it. I think that's a big change, and I don't think that has anything to do with um, the classroom, I think that's just society and young people in general. And that's probably a good change, actually. Um, the other change, I think, which educators are definitely seeing is it, it's more related to technology. Um, the children, um, they need to receive things in smaller chunks. Uh, their attention spans have changed uh, because of technology. You know, TikTok is always the poster child for that. Um, and so sometimes when you're delivering uh, material to them, it has to be in very small chunks, almost like um, TikTok-sized chunks or meme-sized chunks um, to get them to, um, you know, stay in there. Because the old days where a kid could just listen to you for 20, 30, or 40 minutes are long gone. Uh, they do their, their brains are wired differently now than they were 25 years ago. Well, kudos to you for... Uh adapting to that uh, because it it must you know you, you sort of have to go with the world i'm guessing yeah. 
You do. Um, um, the, the key point is, is are they still learning? Are they still curious? Yeah. You know, they're still learning and they're still curious when they leave your classroom that you did a great job. <laughs> and do you have that moment? I'm sure you, you don't strike me as somebody who, who seeks recognition, but do you have those moments when some one of your former students comes up to you in some setting and goes, you know, thanks, thanks, Professor Beck. You know, you really made a difference in my life. You, you do. And then there's the really little ones. I had I had a kid uh, two summers ago who was not a not a when I had him was not a very good student, um, struggled. And he came back to me t- uh, two years ago. He's probably almost 40 years old. And he had a piece of um, literature that the state of Vermont had produced. And he wanted to point out to me that the comma was in the wrong place. <laughs> well, your work is done here. <laughs> Which is really funny. I really enjoyed that conversation. I love that. And I hope he doesn't look at some of my writing because the commas <laughs> seem to fly like seagulls in some ways. Yeah. Um, we're talking now with uh, Representative Scott Beck. He represents Concord, Kirby, and St. Johnsbury. You're up really in the kingdom what one might say is a little bit more conservative part of Vermont. Uh, what's that like uh, for you to to bring the voice of, of that area to, to Montpelier, which, you know, has a little bit more of a liberal lean? Well, it's, um, you know, definitely I'm on, as far as Vermont's concerned, I am on a little bit on the periphery of the mm-hmm. conversation, uh, which is certainly more blue than red. Uh St. Johnsbury actually is a very purple town, I would say, um, and uh, Concord tends to be a little more red. But um, so I have to, you know, I'm I can't I'm not a you know hard over red um, type of um, candidate, which um, you know, as I like to say, it gets me in trouble with both sides. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes my uh, Republicans aren't too happy with me, but then other side Democrats aren't too happy with me, and I, it's okay. I'm I, I'm a father of six children, so I'm used to hearing it from both sides. Um, but it is a challenge. I mean, but it's also an opportunity. I think it allows me to, to form some relationships and to get some work done with my Democratic colleagues, um, because I can go there because I come from a purple district. But then it also allows me to, um, you know, work with my Republican colleagues to, uh, you know, make sure that, um, that their positions are, um, are listened to as well. Yeah, well, I think. From what I know, you, you've reached a, a, a good, respectful balance, and I thank you for your service and, and everything you do. You provided me with uh, a few prompts on some of the legislative uh, issues that are coming up. The first one, I'm not even familiar with uh, recent strikes at Vermont's public tuition system. You said Carson versus Malkin. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it's um, there's an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, it, last year, of course, there was a, a bill thrown into the House and the Senate um, to end, basically end public tuitioning in Vermont. I mean, it was worded a little bit differently than that, but that would have been the net, net effect of it, um, which, of course, is very important to my three communities that I represent. And I, you know, in, in the state press um, over the summer and the uh, very active at the State Board of Education, which has a lot of uh, jurisdiction over independent schools and public tuition. There's kind of this ongoing conversation um, about equity. And um, it's a really interesting conversation, I think, because uh, the groups that um, would like to eliminate 
public tuition, seem to think that equity means that every child goes to the same public school in the same district, depending on what district they live in. And then in the other, you may have to sneeze, in the other uh, <laughs> um, group, which are is um, the group that I'm more in tune with, which is people that are comfortable with public tuition, is our version of equity is that every child gets to go to whatever school best fits their needs, whether it's public or private. Um, and so it's very, it's an interesting conversation because um, we, the two sides can't even agree on the basics of what is equity, or if, if maybe the, be open to the possibility that there are two forms of equity that can work here. And um, so it's a, just a very interesting conversation. Um, of course, the stakes are very high, especially for the, um, the areas of the state that um, do allow public tuitioning because their whole education system and a lot of their culture is, is built around the equity model of every kid, every family gets to choose the, the public or independent private school that best suits their child's needs. Well, it's uh, interesting. It kind of ties back to our earlier conversation about retail doesn't it? That, you know, not everybody's going to be a Walmart shopper and not everybody's going to be a, you know, a downtown bookstore shopper, but, right. But people, that's a good, that's a good connection. Yeah. People have their needs. I, I noted a, uh, now that you got me on the topic, I noted one of your former colleagues who was, um, chair of education wrote an op-ed that was out recently and, he was sort of depicting, uh, independent schools as being elitist, but, um, I, I don't think I bought that. And I don't, I, you know, I don't want to inject my own thinking here too much, but, um, independent schools offer a lot to people who need them, don't they? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, in, in Act 173, which was passed, um, when that individual was, I think he's talking about it, was the chair of house education, which, um, requires, any school that um, takes public tuition dollars, any independent private school that takes those dollars to provide special education services to um, any child. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't agree with that um, comparison. I know that the, the school I work at, which is the biggest independent school in the state of Vermont, um, we, you know, basically take all comers. Yeah. And my experience is that there are, there are people, it, it should flow both ways. You know, there's sometimes you can go in an independent school because there were things in the public school that didn't work for you and you can go back. We, it seems like we would raise the bar in, in both arenas. Um, school construction funding, uh, it, it yeah. certainly must be a, a big topic, um, money wise and otherwise. It is. Um, you know, I don't know how much um, it, the 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 uh, estimates vary wildly of how much school construction needs to occur in the state of Vermont. Um, I think my own personal estimate is I think it's somewhere around a half a billion dollars to a billion dollars. Um, and so there are lots of people that are trying to figure out, like, you know, where's that half billion billion dollars going to come from? Um I think what's really interesting about our current education fund is that the current education fund uh, provides a, a very generous um, school construction aid uh, within it. 
um, being that your homestead, generally speaking, your, your homestead owners in any district only pay about, uh, their taxes only cover about 30 or 40 percent of all education spending. Um, and that would be true for school construction aid. So your average district gets about a 60 percent aid. Um, under the old system, they got 30 percent aid. Um, so that, um, you know, is a really good mechanism in there. I think our problem is right now is that you're you're having uh, different districts are putting forth or contemplating proposals that are upwards of a quarter million dollars per child. You know, districts with 300 kids that are proposing $75 million projects. Um, and while <laughs> while the vast majority of that bill won't be paid by those local taxpayers, um, the problem is is they can't even afford the portion that they would be responsible for because the cost of construction uh, is so high. Yeah, I look at um, – I was in Burlington driving by the Burlington High School, which is pretty much being rebuilt now, and I just can't imagine what the costs are. And even if you can get labor for these things, must be incredible. It is. I mean, uh, in Burlington is probably – when it's, you look at it on a – on a per student basis is probably one of the, the less expensive projects that's been recommended. Um, but it's, it's terribly expensive. And I, I don't know what the answer is. Um, the I mean, if you wanted to uh, reduce that burden, you'd have to come up with a big chunk of money to throw into the education fund. Um, and I don't, you know, I, that doesn't seem very realistic, especially when the, Education fund has been the recipient of the the largesse that was generated by um, allowing online sales to collect sales tax, which has boosted that revenue stream by about a hundred million dollars. And I think the people that own the general fund and the transportation fund in the legislature that are scrimping and clawing and scraping are looking at the education fund and saying, "Hey, you just got this hundred million dollar largesse." What do we get? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The answer is, uh, we did. We did get the general fund some with the corporate tax changes, but um, they're like, "Hey, we're scrimping, we're clawing. Um, how are we going to? If we're going to have a, a tax increase, a revenue increase, it's going to come to the general fund and the transportation fund, not the education fund." Um, so that's a very difficult conversation. Well, certainly a lot. There'll be a lot of debate with your colleagues on that. Um, we only have a couple minutes. I want to um, jump to homeless motel issue. It seems to be something that's been big in in Vermont. Can you share some perspective on that? Well, I, I you know I thought the um, the perspective that was shared last week in the state press was well, it was just an eye opener and just really discouraging. Which is that this isn't working. I mean, it's we're not um, you know. While we might be um, saving some people on a nightly basis, um, it, this is, problem is growing, and we're, it's not not solving the problem. Um, and specifically, it sounds like that um, um, people are, are are coming to the state of Vermont because of the programs that we are offering, which is you know that we're offering these programs to solve our homeless population. We didn't offer these programs to recruit. Because um, we don't have the capacity if people start coming here in large numbers. Um, I, and I think that the, ter- the really, really discouraging piece of the whole thing is, is that I think we're up to, what, two or $300 million that have been spent on this in the last um, three years, I guess it is. And, and literally, most communities don't even have a permanent solution. 
You know, I saw Burlington the other day was talking about a permanent shelter. My community is as well. And it's just like, wow, after all that money, we have nothing to show for. Wow. Well, uh, we're down to our final minute here. I really want to thank you for joining me. We could, we could go another hour easy because there's a lot of other topics that you had listed that are of interest and we'll, we'll get you back if you're willing. Uh, I've been talking with Representative Scott Beck. Uh, he is Concord, Kirby and St. Johnsbury. Uh, reach out to your local legislators if you, um, have concerns about all of these issues. We are a, uh, you know, we have a citizen legislature and, um, you, your voice matters. Uh, so I want to, I really want to thank you, Scott, for being my guest this morning. You're welcome. Thanks, Brad. Anytime and, uh, love to come back. Great. Thank you. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV, Historic Waterbury, Vermont. We will be back right after this with Connell O'Brien. <laughs> 